Hey everybody, this is our uh, first time now in four years that we are back in person. Um, we've now covered the Rashbam, the Nezer, the Ramban. There are still many other commentaries to cover, but I thought that this year I would focus on the Arachayim. First, to give you my background on the Arachayim, when I was growing up, I'd go to my grandfather for Shabbos, so the Alaska Rebbe had an Archaim Kudish speech class year or whatever, and then Shabbos morning. My grandfather said, No, that's Kim Midner, you know, you have to come with me to the class. I would go to like seven or eight, nine, ten years old. I was like, I don't remember exactly the age, but I do remember the boredom. And, you know, he had the daily news and um, marble cake or uh, danishes that he would buy whenever I would come for Shamas. Way more interesting. So I kind of begged off. And I don't know what I would have gotten had I stayed for the classes. But uh, that was my first exposure to our time. And my own personal journey in terms of studying Nach. I never really focused on it. Over the years, I was mostly drawn to the commentaries, I guess we would refer to them as the Pashtan and the people that focus more on Shah and very much the Ibn Ezra to the Rashbam, the Bukhar Shah, two commentaries that um, stressed above all Shutashal Mikran. But from time to time over the years, I would either be stoned in Arachayim or would notice it on the page. And I was like, this is not like some Kabbalistic Hasidic commentary. This is this is shock here. He would ask a question that seemed to me or say something that seemed to me to be exactly on par with the greatest of the Pashtanim. So I always had it as a, use the Latin word, a desideratum. It was always like in my in the back of my mind that I, this is something I would like to do. I would like to cover it. And the main challenge, aside from the lack of time, is the voluminousness of his commentary. He writes a lot. And so the only way, this is his general matter, not specifically for, uh, for the Arachayim. As a general matter, if you want to take anything on, don't take on something. Rome wasn't conquered in a day. Don't take on, okay, I'm going to study the entirety of the Arachayim every week with the partial the way the Baba Sali did it. First of all, you're not the Baba Sali, but second of all, what happens the first week that you were traveling and you're so busy and you don't have time to do it? Then the next week you don't do it. So for me, I have never, as opposed to the other commentators where I've studied them over the years for the classes, I've never studied the Arachim from cover to cover, not even, you know, a whole parsha. I've, here and there, I've studied it, but not in any massive depth. So this is a first time for me. Um, but as I go along, what I've decided to take on is the fact that I'm going to take on Malia a week. And between that and the, the as I say, the length of his commentary, I'm sure he will spring enough ideas in my mind that I'll 
certainly be able to find a topic to focus on. And if not, I can always do the second Aliyah, you know, and, and, and be able to find something. So that, that's sort of the first point. The second point to make is that the Arachayim is one, I think, one of the five people in the last thousand years who had the title Kadosh appended to their name. Anybody know who the five are? Rabbeinu Kaddish is about 2,000 years ago. The Shlach Kaddish. The Rashi Kaddish? I'm not sure what you said, but... Rashi? Rashi, no. No. The Arachayim, the Shlach. All right, there's another voluminous commentary that also is on Chumash. The Al-Sheikh HaKadosh. The Ari. The Ari HaKadosh. The Ari HaKadosh, that's four. And the fifth, you get a prize. You have to really be Hasidic to know that that. He was the anti-Hasid, but greatest of the Hasidim in my mind. The forebear of Kutz, the forebear of Shizcha, is known as the Yid HaKadosh. Anybody heard of the Yid? No? Okay. Yitzchak Yaakov Rabinovich. The Yid HaKadosh. He was the Rebbe of Shemchabunim of Shizcha. Himself, the, obviously, the, the forebear of Kutz, of, of Ger, all of that. The totally tangential point that we really can't get into now, but the Yid was something else out of this world. I want to focus today on the introduction of the Archaim to Chumash, but to me, the only way to do that is really to say that the Jewish people, the Gemara tells us they themselves are not prophets anymore. They're the sons of prophets. This was a response that Gemara tells us when they didn't, when the Bnei Becerra were dethroned, because they didn't have answers to halachic questions, and Pillow had the answer, so they took Pillow Ababli, the Babylonian, and installed him as the new leader, made him the Nasi. So there was a question that came up, and Hill didn't know the answer. And Hill said, Don't worry. It, was, it had to do with um, how the Jewish people would be able to get the knives to shuck the Korim Pesach when Arab Pesach was on Shabbos. He said, Don't worry about it, it's okay. The Jewish people know how to do it. The body politic of the Jewish people know what to do. Even if I don't know the answer, they'll know. And what happened? On Pesach, or Pesach, which was on the Shabbos, they came in with their sheep, and the knives were in the in the wool of the sheep as they came in. That's how they brought the knives in. This relates to a lot that we discussed on Shabbos or Rosh Hashanah. Why not do Tzikiyas? Right, because of the Xavier the Rabbah being able to carry four Amis, we're not going to get into all the side tangents now. But as everybody knows, my Thursday night four years ago, until we went on the Zoom, was always full of a lot of tangents. So we'll see how much fidelity I can stay to staying on point. But the, uh, the, the segue was that if the Jewish people decided to call the RFI Makadush, there's a reason. And we need to focus on that because that's going to be an insight into the commentary. It wasn't just the Alaska Rebbe that I grew up with who was saying we have to learn Arachama Kudish. No, there's something. The Jewish people have decided that these five people got that kind of a name. There's something there. And I think it definitely relates to Rabbeinu Akadish, and I want to spend some time on that.
But first, I'll tell you a few stories that I grew up with. They were in all the sort of the Jewish books then at the time that I remember reading about the Archaim. I don't know if any of them are true historically, but you know the famous line about the Chavetz Chaim, right? Everybody knows the story about the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim came to the to be a witness at a trial, and the the attorney says says to the uh, to the judge, "This uh, the Chavetz Chaim. He's an amazing person. He's he's you know, so special. He never says a bad word about anybody." They're giving all this incredible praise about about the Chavetz Chaim. What are the and what are the uh, what was the response of the uh, the judge? He's he, he's not too impressed. The judge says, um, "Really, you actually believe any of the stuff you're saying about him?" And what did what did the lawyer respond? He said, "Judge, look, I don't know, if, I don't know if this stuff is true or not, but they don't say these kind of things about you and me." All right. So this is one of the stories that I remember reading. Archaim worked. And in his introduction, he talks about his working. And we're, we're going to focus on that later. But Archaim writes that, I'm um, sorry, the storybook that I read about the Archaim wrote that he was working and he was a weaver. I don't know exactly what it means. Uh, a tailor. He knew how to make clothing and was a governor or a prince or something in the town. He lived in Morocco. Um, itself, story for another time about some of the issues that he had there. He he died in the 1600s. He, he yeah, he died in the early 1700s. Lived in the 1600s, late 1600s. And by the way, all the kaddishes, they're all about the same time, except the yid, right? Because that results to also the 1500s. The shla is the 1600s. The the Arachams the 1600s, early 1700s. The um, the Yid is in the 1700s, dies 1813, I think. Um, and we cover all of them. Who, who, did I miss anyone? The Asha, the Asha is a student of Darizal. So he lived in the, in the 1600s. All right. So, so this was the story I read in, the, in, in this book. The story was the following the prince or the the judge, the governor, knows that Archaim is a really good weaver, tailor. So he sends, uh, he sends a um, uh, commission that the Archaim should weave something for him, for Chasim, his kid, something like that. Archaim says, "Thank you for the commission, but I've already earned enough that I need for the week, the month, whatever it may be. I'm not, uh, I'm not interested in the commission." You can keep it. The governor is incensed. This is a personal affront. So to punish him, he um, essentially holds the Archaim to a trial by, by uh, you know, it used to be in the olden days, they would have trials by water, trials by animal. There were various different trials that they would give. And if you could survive the trial, that meant you were innocent. So in this case, he had a little uh, um, menagerie of, uh, of lions. Supposedly, he starves the lions, so they haven't eaten in a week. And Archaim is welcome to go and, and live with the lions. And if he survives, so he's okay. And the people you know, who manage the zoo tell him, you won't believe what's going on. That He's sitting there, and he's 
davening, dancing, singing, talking to the lions, and that they're starving, but they're not eating, and they're sitting there and they're relaxed. So the governor goes and he sees the thing, and he, uh, in, in, as it were, is mollified and realizes that he's dealing with somebody incredibly old. That's one story that I remember reading in the uh, in the children's books as a kid about the Arachayim. Of course, that's a reenactment of Daniel, right? Yes, but but again, they're saying the story about somebody who took place thousands of years later. Um, the second story, again, I find it very difficult to to say that it's true because it seems to me patently difficult to believe, and I'll explain why, is that, as everybody knows, the state of Israel starts in 1948. Um, until 1967, what's known as East Jerusalem was not controlled by the state of Israel. It was controlled by Jordan. And Archaim is buried on Harazesim. And the story goes that, and we know this to be true, that when the Jordanians were controlling the, uh, the lands of East Jerusalem, including Harazesim, they went and managed to file the cemetery. They went with tractors and bulldozed the place, like, like terribly. Um, what they did, if you go to Harazesim today, is they took the tombstones that were overturned. They didn't know where the graves were anymore because they were all over the place. And what they did is they righted them up. You know, they, they put them on the on the correct side and they made like underneath it like a uh, like a tomb, even though that's not the actual tomb. It's the place for the tombstones that at least you, you see who was who is buried there. We don't know where they are anymore, but at least at least there's some semblance, some zikaran on Harazesim. We have the tombstone. The story goes that the tractor came along and tried to knock off the the and they didn't do it through the whole Arizasa, right? I, I don't know like why only one part of the mountain. I'm not sure. Story goes they got to the Arachem's caver. The tractor broke. They brought in another tractor. Tried to break down the caver. And again, it broke. And so that's when they pulled back and realized that this is not a grave that they can be messed with. I grew up with this story and you heard it too, yeah? Yeah, so I grew up with this story. The problem is, as an adult, it's hard to take what I see out of, you know, it's hard for me to uh, to still have the same the same uh, innocence, um, which is the Arachayim's tombstone, we have it. We do have his tombstone, but it's in the same place with all these other tombstones that have been overturned, that have been put back in a semblance, in a way, to make it um, uh, some sort of a, a zikaran. I don't think it's in the exact place. That's the part of it that I'm not 100%. But that, another story. And then, of course, the third thing that I remember always hearing about as a, as a kid was that there was a special connection. Somehow, there was a special connection between the, the Arachayim and the Baal Shemta. I don't think they ever spoke to each other. Much of the Arachayim knew who the Baal Shemta was. But the Baal Shem the founder of Chassidim was very well aware of the Arachai. So much so, as the story went, again, I don't know that 
story is an accurate story. I just this is a story I grew up with. It's stories everywhere. Um, and in all the Hasidic stories, they all say this story, which is that on one Shabbos afternoon, it's getting to the, you know, the end of the day, and Lavshantov is going to eat Shalshudas, and he comes back from the Tiyasudayim and he says, the Nermar Ravi passed away. The Nermar Ravi being the Arachayim. And they said, how do you know? And he said, because there's a certain secret, Kabbalistic, mystical secret in Natilas Yadayim, and only a few people in the world are meriting to know this secret. And it was revealed to me. It was revealed to me, and I, I'm only getting it at this stage of my life, that it must be the person who had it, which was the Arachayim, it must be passed away. And sure enough, Kachava, they eventually got word that he, in fact, had passed away. The Arachayim was 47 years old when he passed away. 47 years old when he passed away. He, many of the stories, again, that I grew up with, said that he had no children. Many Hasidic Rebbes would say that the Arachayim's commentary was so stupendous was because he didn't have any children that he had to exert energy for. If you are somewhat familiar with Chabad, you know that some people say this about the Baba Chirab as well, because he had no children, he was able to dedicate his entire life to the Chassidim, that they became the children, as it were. The problem is it's difficult, again, to take the stories with the reality. The reality was that he was married. He actually had two wives. The first wife he didn't have children with, which is true, and perhaps he wrote some of his commentary at that time. We'll see in his doctor what he says about that. <coughs> but he had a second wife. And with the second wife, he had daughters. Didn't have a son. As I got older, I remember hearing stories that he used to study the Torah with his daughters, but that wasn't stories that I received when I was younger. Whether or not the stories that he learned, the, the comments with his daughters are true, again, I don't know. But this is what I remember hearing as a uh, as a kid, uh, as a as a as a more mature uh, young adult. As I say, if the body politic of the Jewish people has given the name, appended the name Kaddish to somebody, because he didn't call his commentary Arachaim, right? Arachaim, he did not do that at all. Chaim is because of his name, Chaim bin Atar. So if if the and he does call in his commentary, Nefesh Chaim, Or Chaim, that he definitely is doing all the time. But if he is being given this kind of a name, it's because there's something here. And I want to focus on Rabbeinu HaKadosh for a moment, because I think I can show you in his introduction that he's alluding to some of those things as well. Just to be clear, before, before um, we move off, as I said, he died at a relatively young age, just to give you a few more of his historical background. He died in Eretz Yisrael. He made Aliyah. He made Aliyah by way of Italy, from Morocco to Eretz Yisrael, by way of Italy. Why he went to Livorno, I don't know how the travel was in those days. Maybe it was practical, maybe it was impractical to go straight across the desert, North Africa. I'm not 100% sure. One thing is clear, because he was so incredibly great when he got to Italy, they're like, you're not leaving so soon. right? So they made him a yeshiva, a shul, or this or that, so they wouldn't let him leave. But eventually gets away from them and he gets there to Shul. And Eretz Shul, again, 
he starts a yeshiva, he doesn't get right away into Yerushalayim, because it was an epidemic, whatever, but eventually he gets to Yerushalayim, and he's only there for a year before he passed away. So, like and I say, he passed away very, very young. But being in Livorno, being in Italy, enabled him to print his commentary. That is how we get the RFM. Because of the stop that he didn't want to do, because of the place that they forced him to stay, we end up actually getting the commentary. If not, you know, who knows? I alluded to this before, but there were other great Moroccan rabbis at the time of the RFM whose commentaries, unless you really are interested in Moroccan commentaries and Flemish, are just not well known. He merited to be a commentary that I don't think there's any other commentary that the Hasidim think he's one of their own. The Spartan, not Hasidic. The Spartan love him. Ashkenaz, everybody all over says about the Archaim, wow. And the Archaim writes, and we will see in his introduction, he writes that he is going to be doing a commentary that is going to cover everything. Going to cover what we call Pardes, Shah. Remez, Drash, and say he's not limited to one approach. He's open to everything. He's going to, and that's why I told you that, that myself, having been specifically attracted to Pshat for a very long time, would find Pshat in his commentary and be like, what? Our time is Pshat? Like that blew my mind. I did, I thought it was just, you know, Said and, you know, mainly Asik bin Stars. So to me, it didn't seem relevant. But no, he has a lot of Pshat. He's willing to say things we will touch on tonight. Um, very, very interesting about each of these areas and his approach. So, he does. I'm going to get to that. Yeah, he does. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so far, we haven't done any tangents. We still have got some time. Okay. So, I wanted to, as you mentioned, right, one of the Kaddishes, of course. The greatest Kaddish of all, Rabbeinu Akkadish. It's not a mistake that these five rabbis were given the title Kaddish. There's got to be a connection that people saw, the Jewish people saw, to Rabbeinu Akkadish. And what is it about Rabbeinu Akkadish? And I think by just refreshing ourselves on that, it'll help us to appreciate the commentary as it was seen in the light of the Jewish people living in the 1700s when that commentary came out. So we say like this, the, the Gemara calls it, we find Rabbeinu Akkadosh, the, 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 the title given to many times in Shas. That's not um, unique, but there's a few places in Shas that go to the heart of why he's called that. So I thought I would just run through that quickly. The Gemara tells us, the Gemara tells us in Shabbos that on Kufi Chesam Bez, the Gemara says, Amr Abiyasi, miyoyimai lenistakalti b'mila shili. Rabbi Yaisi says, I never looked at my bris mila. So the Gemara says, why, really? The Amr, is that really true? The Amr Leila Rebbe, my time of Karlach Rabbein HaKadosh, they asked Rebbe, they asked Rebbe, why are you called Rabbein HaKadosh? And he responded, right? Imagine the conversation. You go to Rebbe Hudanasi, say, why are you called Rabbein HaKadosh? He tells you why. Like, not unaware. He's entirely aware. And he tells you why. He says, Amr Lumi Yomar Lenis, the Kalti Milashili. All right, so he's being very upfront, forthright, embracing, you know, and, and sharing that he's never looked at his bris meal. So the Umar says, no, that, that can't be right. The Rabbi Milsa Achritzi Havabed Shlehefnas Yadit Takasav Meitai. Rabbi Udana said something else going for him. 
It wasn't just that he didn't look at his bismillah, it was even more than that. It was what? His hand never went below his I'm not going to get into many more details in terms of what, what Rebbe's trying to say, but the point is that Rebbe Huda Nasi is very aware of why he's called a Kaddish, and it has to do with impropriety. It has to do with prurience. It has to do with living a life that is totally dedicated to ascetic ideals, totally dedicated to living a life of Kedusha. When the Torah says, repeated with devotion to you, when the Torah says, it's Kaddishtam Yisam Kedushim Ki Kaddish Ani, when the Torah constantly, repeatedly uses the term of being a Kaddish because Hashem is a Kaddish, Rebbeinu HaKaddish is saying, I am adhering to that principle. That principle of asceticism, that principle of not being somebody who is a moved or bu- buoyed by the pleasures of the flesh, of the material world. It's interesting, just to point out, because there's in the Yerushalmi, many times, I think three or four times at least, the same Gemara appears, and the Yerushalmi is dif- disagreeing with the Babli on this point, about why Rebbe is called Rebbeinu HaKadosh. In the Yerushalmi, the way it appears always is, Antoninus and Rebbe, well, you know, they're very good friends, right? There was Shnei Goyim Bivitnei, Shnei Goyim Bivitnei, Gemara Nebuchadnezzar, etc. So, Rebbe and Antoninus, the Gemara says that Antoninus said to him, can I have from the from the Leviathan? Rebbe says, sure, no problem. Get from the Leviathan. So he says, how come I can't have from the carbon paste? Like, you're letting me eat by the Suda of the Mashiach, which is like, you know, probably the biggest of the big stuff. So I'm going to have this Suda of Leviathan. But in this world, by the carbon paste, if you're not letting me have anything, this is what I'm supposed to do. By the Leviathan, there's no law in the term of what you're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. But by the you're not allowed to eat from it because you're not circumcised. What should I do? I, this is the Torah says. Santaninus was upset. So he gives himself a bris milah. That's only the first part of the story. Then it gets more interesting. Santaninus comes to Rabbi. The Gemara says, and I said, it appears many times in Yushalmi, various versions of the same thing. So he comes to Rabbi. Um, after he gives himself a bris, came in the Shamalek. He goes and cuts himself. He comes to Rebbe and he says, I'm really Rebbe, look at my bris I, mean, I don't know what the need was for that, but here's the response. I'm really Rebbe says back to Antoninus, says, I never looked at mine. I'm going to look at yours. It continues the Gemara. As he never ever looked at his brismila. The Gemara here continues that there was another rabbi, the Yushalmi, that doesn't appear in the Bible, it appears in the Yushalmi. Each time this story is mentioned, the Yushalmi then continues and says there was somebody named Nachum Kodesh HaKadoshim. There was another person known as Kodesh HaKadoshim. We know in the Bessam English there was a Kodesh and a Kodesh HaKadoshim. Nachum Kodesh HaKadoshim, why was he called so? Nachum Kodesh HaKadoshim. Suras Matbea Miyam. Right, what is it? Suras Matbea? It's on a coin in order to, how do you take a silver, piece of silver and make it into a coin? You you impress on it, right? Some sort of a stamp of sovereign, right? Every, even Barkech, when he was like the running, right, the land of Israel, he had, they minted coins. That's the sign of a leader. You mint a coin. He wouldn't even look at the Matbea on a coin. He wouldn't look at the Tzura on a coin. That's supposed to give you an idea of what else he wouldn't look at. He wouldn't look at anything. Right? That's going even further. 
than Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. He's known as Nachum Ish Kodesh Hakadosh. So, a bit of a difference in the Bavli and the Yishami as to why Rabbi Yehuda Kodesh is called Kodesh either, according to the Bavli, because his hand never went below his belt. According to the Bavli, just not looking at your Bismila, even Rabbi Yehuda didn't do that. Whereas, according to the Yishami, Rabbi is known as Rabbi Yehuda because he never looked at his Bismila. Because he doesn't even look at it. So you see the kind of ethos, you see the kind of approach that we're talking about in relation to Kedusha. And in fact, the Gemara tells us that at the end of his life, Rabbi picks up, the Gemara says, the Gemara says that Rabbi picked up his ten fingers. He picked up his ten fingers and he said, I only used my ten fingers to study Torah. And I had no joy out of this world, even from my little pinky finger. I should have peace in the world to come. And in fact, uh, as Tesis points out over here, Tesis says, before a person starts focusing that he should daven, that Torah should enter him, he should be so focused on having Torah be imbibing the Torah, he should first focus and daven, you want Torah to be able to go into you, you want to be suffused with Torah, first make sure that the ma'adanim aren't going into your body. First make sure that the pleasures, the earthly pleasures, the material pleasures of the flesh aren't going into your body. And of course, we're saying about Rebbe, that Rebbe was a person who did not have the earthly pleasures. He was able to take his ten fingers, show it up to heaven by the time of his death, and say that I, that it was um, clear to Akadosh Baruch Hu. was clear to you, Akadosh Baruch Imagine somebody saying this on his deathbed, right? When you're going to be the most honest you're ever going to be in your life, Saying on your deathbed, Hashem, it's clear to you that I have never used these ten fingers for anything other than terror, and then no pleasure from this world. So you see, again, that is, fits perfectly with these other gemaras that talk about Rabbi Nachmanish because of having nothing to do with, you know, the Brutamila, etc. The Gemara Navarizara Navyura Aleph Amar Aleph tells us that Rabbi's table never lacked any um, fancy dishes; it had all the kinds of delicacies normally. In the olden days, when we were all growing up, remember there was seasonal fruit, right? You went to the grocery, and the winter you had certain fruit, and the summer you had certain fruit. You didn't have peaches in the winter. You didn't have watermelon in the winter, right? You didn't have oranges in the in the summer. Yeah, each each fruit was a different season. And if you go to a more uh, climate in like a Florida, or you go to a climate that's more near the equator, it's a different story. But in New York, in that area, right, you had winter fruit. It's not rapid. In a time before refrigeration. In a time, you know, 2,000 years ago, Rebbe had all fruits in all seasons. Think about what that means for the ability, for his wealth and his ability to keep things around. He had everything at all times. So the Gemara says, that's what it means. Him and Antonis, they were so wealthy, they had everything. And how could that be? Didn't we just say they didn't have any benefit any material benefit from this world the taisis explains if rebbe had no pleasure from this world even a tiny bit so why does he have a table full of all the delicacies says 
He had a lot of people that came to his table, a lot of people that came to his meals. Remember, Rabbi was the Nasi. He was the head of the, the, the yeshiva, the head of everything. So he had tons of people coming to his meals. So he had to have a lot of stuff out for everybody. But Rabbi himself, Rabbi himself had nothing. He had no pleasure from the world. No pleasure from the material, which Tesis explains. Before you start dominating the territory into yourself, first domination you have ma'adanim enter to yourself. And in fact, the, uh, there's another Yushami, there's Yushami in Teya, uh, right at the beginning of Teya, the Yushami says that there was a king, Artaban, um, who sent Rebbe a big jewel, like a very fancy jewel. And he said, you know, I'm giving you a fancy jewel, uh, well, what are you going to give me? So he sent him back a mezuzah. So Artaban was very upset, he gave him back a mezuzah, I gave you a fancy jewel. So he's, Rebbe said to him, this mezuzah is worth more than your jewels and my jewels combined. We have to watch like crazy over all these jewels, but the mezuzah watches over us. <laughs> In fact, there is another aspect to Rebbe that I think is relevant, and the Archaim also references this in his introduction, and that is Rebbe's suffering. Right? On the one hand, we have his asceticism. He does not take from this world. But on the other hand, we also have his suffering. Rebbe suffered, the Imam Bamatsiyam Peheg tells us that Rebbe had tremendous, tremendous suffering. His whole, uh, um, like, sort of middle ages for, for 13 years, whatever the different, different gears, how long exactly. But for so many years, he had suffering. Umar says his suffering was because of a certain mice, they didn't have Rachmanis on a calf that was going to the slaughter and tried to hide. Uh, by him, and he said, he says, you, you, this is what you're here for, don't hide by me, so he didn't, he wasn't a member of PETA, he didn't go and help out the animal, so he has a tremendous suffering, different versions, exactly what happened, but it seems to be that he had a, a, some sort of problem going to the, to the washroom, um, the Gemara says that they would try to time the, when Rebbe would go to the bathroom to like make a lot of noise, because the heart-rending cries from Rebbe going to the bathroom was so loud that that you know people couldn't bear listening. And the Gemara says that even so, with all the noise that they would make, it would be heard by the sailors in the sea. Like it gets you the idea of the tremendous suffering that Rebbe had in his life. The, the this context of this Gemara is a story, is a whole series of stories. We don't have time to get into them now, but among the stories is a competition that you see between Rebbe and Rebbe Lezer ben Reb Shimon, right? The son of Reb Shimon Baichar, Rebbe Lezer ben Reb Shimon, he was a great, great Tana. Not time to get into it now, but like Bimar makes it out as though he was like on a level even beyond Rebbe Noah Not for now to explain, but it's very fascinating because in his case, he was very corpulent. Rebbe Lezer ben Reb Shimon was very large and how he was nevertheless still 100% um, holy, such that um, he was able to take a piece of his fat, cut it out of his body, and it put it out in the middle of the hot sun of the summer, and it wouldn't become surah, wouldn't become decaying at all. And he was so holy, that after he passed away, his wife wouldn't date Rabbi. Rabbi says, maybe you want to go on a date. She says, no. Rabbi was so holy, even Rabbi Nakarish, as holy as he is, not holy like him. So, in the context of that, 
and all the suffering that Rabbi Huda and Asi suffered in his life, the Gemara then says that Rabbi asked about the Blesberg Shimon's son, who was incredibly handsome. And the Gemara says he was in the profession, uh, like they call the oldest profession. So, so much so, the Gemara says he was so handsome that the people who would be paid for their services $2 would pay him $8. And Rebbe made sure to take this boy and send him to Yeshiva and make him a rabbi and hired a tutor for him. In fact, the Gemara says him something amazing. The Gemara says that Rebbe gave him smicha before he even knew how to learn. Right, and this is his bar plukta. This is a blessed of Shimon who, when he was sitting in the chair, they weren't getting along. So what the Gemara is showing is Rabbeinu Akkadosh, he didn't have any hanaf in this world in a material way. He had tremendous yisurim. And despite all that, the presence of mind to have mercy on the son of his bar plukta to make sure that he would have a Torah education, that he would become a something. The Mar says he did it with a lot of people. He did also with Tarfin's grants and whatever. But the most amazing thing is that with Elizabeth Shimon's son, he took care of him. All right, so this brings us, that brings us to the Arachim's introduction and the few points that I wanted to raise up on here. The Arachim tells you about his work. First of all, as we pointed out, he, he, he writes his commentary and publishes it in Italy. And he tells you who were the people who helped him publish it. You know, when you go to Eretz Yisrael, for me, it was like an amazing thing that you go some places and you see that there's a huge name of the donor. And you're like, okay, fine. You know, everybody needs to be encouraged to give. If the donor needs to have his name being emblazoned on the thing, Okay, not a problem. But you go to Eretz Yisrael and you see the shuls from 2,000 years ago. They have all the donors there. This is not, I'm, this is not kidding. I'm serious. You go there. You have, uh, what's it called when you have those little um, stones that are all put together in these, in, in these diagrams, right? Anyone know what it's called? Yeah. Mosaics, exactly right. That was a rhetorical I think I No, I'm kidding. I didn't remember. But mosaics, that's the exact word. They're not done the way we do in today. Today, they dye the stone. In those days, they didn't have that kind of a dye. They actually used different color stones to do the mosaics. But there are mosaics in Eretz Yisrael at old shuls that are 2,000 years old, and they have all the donors' names. That blows your mind, number one. The second that blows your mind is Many times these names are not Jewish. They're Greek names. Right? They're Roman names. They're not Jewish names. You go to the Gemara and get them, and that's the Aleph thing where it tells us that that the Shemus of the Kalagoyim were the Jewish people mostly had not Jewish names. But then that would be going down too much of a chance, so I'll try to avoid that. Okay. So we come to the Khan's commentary, and I'm not aware of any other introduction to the Mikros Kedalus, at least not in my edition. Of any other mafarish um, that's brought in my mafarish, admittedly not all of the all of the commentaries, but he brings down his donors. He brings down the people who helped him write his com, who helped publish his commentary, gave him the strength, the sukkar, and the 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 financial wherewithal 
to be able to get this commentary out there. It mentions, uh, there's a, is, uh, it looks like at least uh, two members of the Ergas family. Um, so that's number one. Number two, the Archaim tells you what he thinks is the necessary prerequisite to write his commentary. Says the Archaim, and this should be the, a clear and easy connection to Rabbeinu Akkadosh. Says the Archaim, there were three main things that I was required to do in order to be able to write my commentary. Number one, I needed to have a um, clear mind that had totally disavowed myself from secular items and from material pleasures. In order to write my commentary, I had to push out secular matters and material pleasures. Right? What it does is it essentially takes you away, it pushes you away from the uh, from the light of the Torah and I wouldn't be able to actually get onto the truth. Right? I'll end up having like, you know, like gold or silver, you know, nice metal, right? But what happens when it has um, impurities in it. So the only way to get to have pure Taira is to disavow, to divorce yourself from all of the secular matters in the world and all of the Tanuge Elam Hazen. That was number one. And by the way, he is very humble in saying that of all of his Torah study, Ta'amti Bikse Hamata, Mesuka Miyaris Devash. He says, I tasted just a bit on the edge of a stick. That's a reference to whom? That's a clearly a reference to Yonis and Ben Shol in the sarcastic response that he had to his father when his father had made a shvua that nobody should be able to eat. And they weren't there. Him and, the, and his uh, arms beer weren't there. And they had tasted some honey because they were starving. And Shol wanted to kill him, his own son, for having violated the oath that the father had taken on behalf of him. So he's referring to that as a way of saying that even he, that he keeps all these three things, nevertheless, he is just a taste of the Torah. Second thing, he says, one has to have the presence of mind. Right? So to use the presence of mind, calmness of mind, to be able to weigh things, to be able to understand things in a clear-headed way. And the third is to have a fear of God, to have a true fear of Hashem. That is a prerequisite to writing a successful commentary on Chumash. He says, I'm bringing my best stuff, right? That's what we do when we bring Bikur, bring the first stuff to Beis HaMikdash. He says, I'm bringing my Bikurim. This is my commentary. And it should all be Kurdish, Hilulim, Lashem. That is the three things that he says that he's going to do. And then he tells you about his Sa'ar Shabi Isa, right? The, the thing that we all have to deal with, which is the fly in the ointment, life, right? I'm trying to divorce myself from the secular world, from the mundane, from the material, but it just keeps on coming in on me. So he tells you about how he wrote his commentary. 
He says, says, I wasn't able to really do a orderly job of writing my commentary. I could only work on my commentary for five hours a week. The Archaim is voluminous, and he's claiming that he worked on it for for five hours a week, a person who died by the age of 47. Okay? He says, He says, I was very busy. He says, I was busy with monetary matters. I was busy with, with life matters. Remember, he was a rabbi. He had to deal with that. He also had to make a living. He had a, a lot of things that he was dealing with. And he's telling you he had very little time to write his commentary, despite the fact that he had tried to divorce all the material mundane things out of his life. Nevertheless, those were his challenges. So he says, From my youth, I really tried to study as much as I could, to understand as much as I could, but the reality was this is what it is. And then he tells you about the life of his being a rabbi. He says, aside from all the stuff that I just mentioned, I also had to deal with the fact, that I had to darshan every day two drushes to all the people of the city. So I had to prepare speeches. Right? That was, that's one of his complaints. And then he says something interesting. And in the long days of the summer, I had to give three speeches. So he only had a chance to work on his commentary four or five hours a day. Remember, he also wrote commentary on the Shofanar, right? He wrote commentary on other areas of Tanakh. He has the archive is just one of his, it's the famous one, it's the main one that everyone knows. But he wrote other things. But he's telling you that not only is he busy with his living, not only is he busy with answering you know, people's questions, he also is giving a lot of classes. So therefore, the actual commentary of the archive four or five hours a week. He doesn't tell us. He only tells us he only tells us when he's able to publish it in the porno. I don't know. But he, we, yeah, I don't know. But he publishes before he gets there to show. So the, you you add that down there, so go to the next the next paragraph there. So at the end of this paragraph he says it's called the Chafasti right? He says, "Vichad is manmul mitzvuzul afarsh beis gimel gagir me mamare lekim chaim." I'm just going to try to do a few tidbits, right, a few tidbits every parshim. Then he says, "So I'm davening Hashem," and here he says something. He says, "We have eight minutes, so two more things. We cannot finish this introduction without doing these two things because they both blow your mind." Okay. And probably should have let up with this because there's a lot of good tangents that could come from here. But this is how we end up. All right. So he says, I'm very concerned about Geneva's Das. Anybody know what Geneva's Das means? Right? The idea being that, in, in this case, of what he means is that he's going to cloak himself in somebody else's commentary. I'll tell you a quick story of Sam Seifer. Sam Seifer would always make a joke that he would say to people, you want to say my Torah in your name? No problem. Just please don't say your Torah in my name. Right? 
So as says the says the Arachayim, something unbelievable. He doesn't want to be um, taking the credit of what others have thought, right? Before him. So I didn't open books. I didn't open the books of others. I wrote the commentary myself. He says, he says, El Hashem I had the terror in front of me. I tried to avoid opening other people's books, so I shouldn't take their credit for the work that they did and claim it as my own. Okay? That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. One point, but I'm going to conclude with this point because I mentioned this already part of it before, which is he says, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to write you a commentary, the shot, the drash, remis, so all of that. And then he says, he said something amazing. And I, until I read this introduction, I had never seen this anywhere except for the Rashbam. He says, I'm going to sometimes give you pshat that's against Chazal. He says, I'm not arguing on Chazal, I'm not arguing on Halacha. When it comes to practical halacha, we change not an iota. But as a matter of pshat, if I see pshat in a different way than chazal, I'm going to tell you pshat and shunah from chazal. The Rashbam writes that, and famously in the beginning of Parasim Mishpat, the Rashbam writes that. And he says to you, I'm going to write pshat that's, even if it's different than chazal, even if the halacha is what it is, but the, the pshat's different, I'm not going to be afraid to share with you my pshat. Because the Torah is multivalent. And there, the Ibn Ezra, who never quotes the Rashbam, even though he was fully aware of the Rashbam, as I've proven before, there, the Ibn Ezra responds back and says, Absolutely not. We have to always interpret Pshat in accordance with the Halacha, in accordance with Chazal. Here, here the Arachayim seems to be saying that, of course, he's not Chazal, Michal, but he's going to say Pshat, that's Mishnah from Chazal. Doesn't change an iota the practical halacha, but the Torah is open, as Rashi points out here in Bereshis, right? With the Martin Sanhedrin, the Torah is like a patish, right? Which strikes a sella, right? It's uh, it a sella at, um, when you have a, have a rock hitting the stone. What happens? A lot of sparks, like a shattering rock. When the hammer shatters the rock, sparks go all over. So too, the Torah goes in all different kinds of directions. The Archaim. Is going to show us in all different areas and spheres of Torah. It's going to be his own unique commentary, not influenced by others. And it's going to be a person who tried mightily in his life to avoid the material world, to avoid the pleasures of the material world, to avoid the secular temptations that exist. And that's why he was handed the title Kadosh. And that's what has enabled this commentary to be as classic as it is. All right,